Welcome back to the Magic of the Spheres podcast. This is Sabrina Monarch, and this is a show about spiritual lifestyle and personal evolution. I'm an evolutionary astrologer, a clairvoyant, and a thought leader, and I started this podcast to have eclectic and impactful conversations about astrology as well as all things spiritual and personal development. Hey, I'm back with two new chapters of Hungry Ghosts of Paradise. I want to come back to this quote from Austin Coppock's 36 Faces on the Third Decan of Scorpio. This is ultimately a face of wrestling with one's own desire nature, for it leads one inevitably back to confrontation with the nature of desire itself. It is the property of no one else. The floating cloud of fantasies must be recognized as wholly one's own. The formula by which this is accomplished is the separation of desire from all external objects of lust. It is the matter of the transformation of a desire, rather than its immediate gratification in sense objects. Desire, denied its objects, rebels and tries to dominate the person in which it resides, resulting in the type of unbalanced pleasure-seeking described by Agrippa and pictured in the Picatrix. But this debauchery is not the proper formula for this face, but a rebellion against it. The process truly is the dissolution or putrefaction of desires, back into their raw, unstructured form, their prima materia. The succubus wears crow wings, the corvus of the negrito. This phase can thus be used to return unfulfilled attachments and desires to their beginning. We bury the corpse of past loves and wait for the flowers to grow from their graves. But such disillusions take time, and the ghosts of desire which haunt this face are real. They are projections of our energy split off into quasi-autonomous phantoms. These projections have the capacity to obsess, like that of succubi or incubi. When desire's hungry ghosts have finally been laid to rest, the compost is complete and a rich loam results. In the grave soil of yesterday's love, anything can grow. This face is thus a formula of liberation, for if we were not capable of laying our desires to rest, returning them to pure energy, we would be enchained forever, prisoners of what we once held dear. I only regret, as a storyteller, the length of time that we must spend in the Hell Realm. But I do give you my promise that we will get out of it. And I'll leave you to it now. And, as always, this story is explicit. It is for adults. Please listen responsibly. Despite the generator vision's encouragement to connect with Source primarily, I still want to be held by someone else, and yet there is no one around that I want in that way. I wish it were easy to find. I see a friend of mine, John, at an occult vent in town. We are astrology and metaphysical friends. I have spent many evenings talking about magic and spirituality with him. He is in his early 40s. He found my website and reached out over email, which turned to a phone conversation, and I was surprised at his immediate will to connect. 
The intimacy was always buffered by me being with someone else, or him being with someone else, and I think of him as just a friend. At the event, John asks how I'm doing, and I tell him I'm not well. He lights up in mirroring grimness. I'm doing terribly too. He seems to say, we should hang out. He is also going through a breakup where, like me, he feels profoundly abandoned. I've seen him cry about it. I am trepidatious about commiserating with him, fearful that in both of our under-resourced states, I would feel worse with him than I would alone. But after being lonely for long enough, I reach out. I go to his house. While I am there, Aiden texts me after days of silence, which in my logic at the time means a transaction occurred. The universe liked me spending time with this other man and rewarded me with Aiden. Maybe Aiden, and Aiden's soul, likes me having other connections. Maybe it's the law of attraction. Maybe I can use this moment to get somewhere else. The thought dissipates, and I find myself on John's couch in tears, telling him I am truly more miserable than I ever have been in my life. Can I hug you? He asks. Okay, I say. We hug. His body feels incredibly tight, like he's making a river dam out of his body. The hug lasts 20-30 seconds before I start seeing tunnels of vivid color. Reds, oranges, and yellows. Are you alright? I ask. There's a lot of... energy here. Slowly, he slips his hand over my thigh and up my skirt. His hand disappears under my longer red skirt with roses on it. Stop, I say. We face each other. What is this? I ask. I feel like we could heal each other, he says. A sticky, white string of saliva connects his lower and upper lip in the right corner, and I hyper-focus on it as evidence of how far I've fallen. Heal each other. Heal each other, heal each other, heal each other. I start to rapidly calculate how this exchange might manifest Aiden or not, or if I have some debt I owe the universe. Hearing myself think, I can observe how off I am. And in the best fond response I can gather, I say, I'm curious about our connection, but I think I need to go and be by myself now. A few days later, he follows up about wanting to see me soon. I'm actually extremely upset about what happened, I say back over text. Really? I'm sorry. Can we talk about it? Maybe someday, I say, I text him a little bit for clarity. He apologizes more, confessing to his own woundedness. In the moment... I can feel his flawed innocence. At the same time, I have these damning stories about him, how he's predatory, how he's found me in a weakened state, how he'd never make a pass at me if I was thriving. I start to realize I'm bleeding out and other animals are smelling the scent of my wounded animal. I'm receiving erotic attention frequently, but from men who I feel are attracted to my pain, and while I can barely hold myself, I feel reality is forcing me to have boundaries, 
while another part of me is dissolving. Finding a no requires my erect attention, a consolidation of ego and identity. It comes up again in a moment where a man who I met through a friend wants to get an astrology reading from me. He, like John, is in his 40s, and he has a military past my friend has told me about in bits and pieces, something mysterious and special operative. He is offered to impregnate my friend and financially support her family. My friend is tempted by the offer because of how badly she wants a child soon, but she is suspicious of how controlling he might be as a provider. It's this sense that she has. He comes to my house and after sitting down, confesses to me that he's not actually here for the astrology reading, but he wants to be lovers. I recall how, while preparing his chart before he came over, I felt a sense of being locked out of the chart, that it had nothing to say to me. My cat is already sitting in his lap and he's petting her. I scan the moment, I scan him. If there's anything here that will relieve me of my desperation. I get a strange drunken sense of our bodies coming together and of me feeling worse than when it began. I don't want to be lovers, I say dryly. I begin to feel my breath enter my chest, travel down to my stomach and root. I feel the outline of my shape, my organs. Very well, he seems to say, and shrugs. I should mention, I didn't really need your insight about myself, but I wanted to tell you what I see in you. Okay, I scoff. What do you see? The expansiveness of your entire being, your entire infinite being, is compressed and holding on to your pain, a tight little ball, so small in comparison to everything that you are. It's where your attention has sunk. But really, you're more expansive. See your cat. He continues petting her as she purrs and rubs her face against him. Is only a reflection of the love that you are. She's like this because of you. In my mind's eye, I see exactly what he's talking about. The compressed ball of pain I am holding. And I don't know how to stop it. I endure the conversation for longer than is true, partly because I don't know how to exit conversations very well yet, and partly because I am not looking forward to anything in his absence, and the hellish vision of him analyzing me with my cat in his lap, and the zero presence of actual danger, is a compelling image to confront here in my living room. He pays me for the reading that didn't happen. And I remember looking at this $100 bill and thinking of how confused I felt. And this glimmer inside of me that whispers, it's just a bad day at work. You're still learning about professionalism. A client has never done this before. It's okay. You're learning. And you got paid to learn. He ordered a reading with ulterior motives he announced right away and he paid your fee for your time. It's okay. What does it mean to look at this $100 bill and soften the urge to demonize it? The urge to light it on fire, which would only make my night worse. This hidden, latent, emerging rage. 
to just pull the paper taut and find some reprieve in the drama of it all, the faint silver silhouette of my organs beneath my skin. Chapter 24. My friend invites me out dancing while I can still barely hold myself up. I interact with people at the dance like I am in a dream, detached, unexpecting, experimental even. I don't think I am that lovable or even beautiful anymore. And because I am not gripping onto any desire to make an impression, I am natural, unfolded, loose. I make a friend with a man, Francisco, who teaches me some salsa moves. I tell him about my life. He's stunned. He's been through a lot. And he wants to connect and have dinner sometime. Francisco wears a formal shirt and dress shoes. He dances like he grew up with dance in his family. Behind his, you've been through a lot. I feel a dark house, fenced with overgrown, thorning flowers, some mystery inside of the house and its broken windows. He resonates. At dinner, it's completely dark outside of the restaurant. In the glow of the building, we sit facing each other, and Francisco tells me that he related so much to my story of having a spiritual awakening and it being medicalized afterward, that he also rejected the medications. But I was really just off, he disregards himself. I said things that were upsetting to people. You can't talk like that. You were having flashes of insight, I say. So what if you didn't develop tact at the same time? It doesn't mean what you said wasn't valid. Tell me the story. He'd had some larger-than-life opening experiences. Travel, dreams, magic entering his world. Then one day... In a down moment where everything was normal and he had not taken any drugs, he went to go put on a pair of headphones, one with a cord. As soon as he put the headphones on, he started hearing music and seeing fractal geometric patterns, and he looked at the cord and realized it wasn't plugged into anything. He said the visions lasted for two to three days straight, that he was able to see things about people and he spoke too intensely, scaring people. He furrows his brows in shame looking downward, and I see him in this moment, throwing his shamanic opening into a trash can, and I don't like it. Only because I see such a strong image of him throwing his shamanic opening into a trash can, I say sternly, Francisco, it was your birthright to have visions. It is fucking magical that you went there. If we lived in a different cultural context, that might have been the moment you were recognized as having a gift and given training. Don't let the thick, disenchanted fucking programming of this mundane world have you believe that you had no right to enter a different reality and see what you saw, just because you didn't have a map at the time for integrating your experience or understanding what was happening. He perks up and looks me in the eyes, and two lights hover by him on each side, like sparklers hovering in place while his eyes are open wide. I've seen this particular formation of lights while having sex with Aiden. What have I done, I think, looking at the hovering sparkler lights and the sleeping part of him that has just awoken? These aren't just little sparkles on his face. These are hovering fireworks, and this is serious. 
I watched him throw his soul away and I handed it back to him. And he's catching it. But what does he think of the messenger? He wants to stay in touch. I am taking on astrology students experimentally at this time. I teach them one-on-one. I put the invite out on Facebook. I wanted to learn how to teach by doing it. At some point, I have around six to seven students, and they come over individually, and I teach them astrology from scratch. Often, it's ecstatic. I love my students and how excited they are to learn. A woman comes over for the first lesson, saying she looked at the moon the whole walk over. She's in a transitional time in life. Francisco wants to learn astrology from me. He comments profusely on all my posts. I keep ignoring all the signals I track about where he's really coming from, what he really desires from me, hoping he'll leave it alone. He's sitting at my kitchen table and we're only through lesson one, the Aries Libra axis, when he starts shaking and crying. Just because I have known violence in my life, he says, it's not all there is to me. I'd never said it was, but we were invoking such themes with Aries. I understand beauty he says, profoundly. Through his tears, he says, you are the most beautiful woman I have ever met, and I understand you have been through so much, and I want to love you in the way you want to receive it. At any pace or timing that you want, you would decide. I will give you everything you want. Again, the image of the moment compels me as though my environment is more alive than I feel but I can't afford to be so disassociated now that this has come to a head. So I say, Francisco, thank you, but I don't feel the same way. I also don't even know how to respond right now, so I'd like you to go. The astrology lessons stop, and for a couple weeks, I field Francisco's impassioned messages. He drops by my house to bring me a gift. I refuse to exit the house and text him to please go. Over text, I urge him to understand that I only handed a part of his soul back to him that day at the restaurant, that I saw he was rejecting himself and I held that fractured piece back up to him. It's not even about me, I protest. But I do see you, he argues. He goes on a Vipassana silent retreat and writes me a feverish love letter from there about how all he can do is think of me See me when he closes his eyes. See me close to his face. It's just pen on folded lined notebook paper, makeshift, but glowing like he left a piece of his soul or his blood on it. And I kind of like the passion and intensity that he's directing at me, but I see myself in my pain about Aiden and how tortured Francisco is over me. Only Francisco goes all the way to show it while I hide my obsession about Aiden and have only written drafts of pleading letters and never actually sent them. I get on my knees and pray to God. I apologize for all the times I held the prayer for this type of command, to have such intense sex power that I could not even be rejected, to inspire intense need and codependency in a partner who I was also obsessed with, so that I would never be abandoned. All the wishes I ever had to be intensely desired by everyone. The greed for this kind of power and its disconnection to the heart. I'm so sorry, I say in tears to God. I don't actually wish for this anymore. I release this desire. I just want to love and be loved. 
please help Francisco be happy and fulfilled in his heart with a woman who loves him. The flames Francisco incinerates in, I know well. He mirrors how I feel. I tell my friend over the phone that just existing is painful, that I feel like I'm on fire all of the time. Pluto is exactly square your sun right now, she says. It's like you are dying and regenerating, and it's happening on a cellular level. Many months later, I run into Francisco on the street. We are a little jarred at the sight of each other, but I can see that the fire has settled into embers, that somehow he found a way to accept holding that part of his soul I held back up to him in the mirror. One evening, I'm tired of Aiden not responding to me by phone, so I drive to his house. Months ago, he said I was welcome over any time, and he never rescinded the offer, so I decide to lean into insanity and see if my welcome still stands. When I arrive, he is sitting outside in a light drizzle, watching Breaking Bad on his laptop. The keyboard misted with the rain. Aiden looks up surprised to see me and smiles warmly, shuts his computer. We enter his room, which is now the shed instead of the house, which is news to me. There is a tarp fort outside the shed, a camp stove. Inside, his bed is damp. He turns up a space heater. We fall into familiar rhythms with our bodies as though there is nothing strange about how I invited myself over, or that his computer was steadily getting wet in the rain. I had thought that the mechanics of our bodies could satisfy me, but it doesn't. We talk. You're right, he tells me as though he is remembering something. I have been neglecting our connection, the accident, and then my dog. I've just been in survival mode. I speak with my astrologer, Dina, about my withdrawal, about how badly I want to be having amazing sex and how frustrated I am that the universe seems to hear my hunger loud and clear, but only sends me men I don't want, like some kind of fucked up psyop from God. It should be easier to be happy. I'm actually in tears, saying... I don't understand. I just want to have a man I like to be around. I love to cook. I want someone to cook for that's not just me. I'm an amazing chef, and I want amazing sex. I have so much to offer. It should be so simple. Aiden won't even come over and eat my food and have sex with me, and I feel so pathetic that I want to give him my sex, my heart, my fucking housewife-esque care, and he doesn't even want it, except on a random off chance, but he's different now. I don't feel I ask for too much. If not Aiden, why can't there be someone else? I can't go on like this, eating alone, not being touched, going to waste like this. I feel your Cancer South Node so strongly, she says. You may need to throw a rock on the Capricorn North Node side of the pond. Create an anchor in your work and professional life. That's how you can get what you want. I sit in my room one afternoon and close my eyes, ask my soul what I am to do now. My inner sight looks deep brown, like a cave, like a burnt map. The emptiness says, go to graduate school. Not because you want to, but because it's your inheritance. I have relatives who explicitly will pay for it in full. 
Your work with soul is all about accepting your inheritances, your treasures, your karmas, your debts, your core wounds, your talents, your resources, all of it. It's what you have to work with. You'd rather be an ecstatic love land, but you're not. And though I have stories of all the things I'd rather do with that kind of money, like invest in my business, I know the funds are only available for grad school, nothing else. I think, why not accept? Maybe Dina was right. All of my cancerian desires are dead ends right now. I want to be held, but I'm a bleeding animal. I'll Capricorn it. As I begin to orient towards such a goal, the research, signing up for the prerequisite classes at community college for my desired degree, etc., my obsession for Aiden has less space. I find ways to always be working or studying. In my waking fantasy, I'm like a film protagonist who is a single mother with two jobs, too weighted by responsibilities to be available for low-value love. Of course, she longs to have her heart held by someone capable, but her responsibilities are a fortress that make it hard to get to her. Thank you.